wonderful psalm. Man, that was a good rendition of singing Psalm 14. That was really cool. Before we tear it apart and, and ingest it to become our own, let's bow our heads and pray that God would use this to strengthen us and give us his wisdom. God, you said through your son that the wise man builds his house upon the rock so that when the, the winds blow through and the, the rains pour down, the floods come crashing their waves against our lives, that we would stand firm on that rock. I pray that you would use Psalm 14 to give us that wisdom and help us build upon the rock of Christ. God, as Jake already mentioned, unless the Lord builds the house, we labor in vain. We can't even build our lives upon the rock unless your spirit comes and helps us. So we ask God, send your spirit to bring to life these words, to convict us of our sin, of our own folly, help us turn from it, and to receive your wisdom that points us to our crucified and risen King Jesus who reigns from heaven by the power of his name and for the glory of his name, we pray these things. Amen. You ever hear the news from the day, from whatever news outlet that you follow and think to yourself, we are ruled by a bunch of morons. A couple of laughed, say yes. It seems everywhere, from city and state and national leaders to our education system, corporations, entertainment, science, medicine, they all seem to do the exact opposite of what needs to be done. Now, you're probably right to let that thought simmer a little longer before you come out proclaiming it, but it's not a thought that's far from biblical truth. The word moron is actually a biblical word. It comes from one of many Greek words used to describe a common theme throughout the Bible, that of the fool, the stupid person, the idiot. These are sharp words that must be used carefully, but Jesus used those words often to warn people of the folly of sin. Sin is moronic. The entire book of Proverbs was written to help a king, to, for, by a king for his son to lead future generations in wise leadership with, with godly wisdom to avoid folly. The Proverbs warn that wisdom and folly can prosper or destroy a nation. Without wise leadership, a nation falls. When the wicked rise, people hide themselves, but when they perish, the righteous increase. When the righteous increase, the people rejoice, but when the wicked rule, the people groan. When fools are in charge, the people suffer because they don't know as much as they think they do. They overestimate their knowledge and their own ability to manage such complex systems. They have dumb ideas about how the world works. And when they implement those ideas, it just creates more problems. But never fear, they have more dumb ideas to solve those too. 
Their foreign policies put us more in danger. Their, their crime strategies promote more crime. Even though they've been in politics for decades, they blame everybody else for all of our problems. Their schools put children farther behind. Their public health policies make people sicker. Their economic policies make us poorer. Their family support programs make our families weaker. So what are God's people to do when we are led by morons? When we live in a population of fools? Psalm 14 points us in the right direction. It reveals to us that all of us are fools. And that we must turn from our destructive folly to find salvation in God's wisdom. You can't do a whole lot about them out there, but there's plenty of folly residing right here in our own hearts. So the solution starts with us. Turn from your destructive folly and find salvation in God's wisdom. Psalm 14 is a song about dealing with the foolish world all around us. And first, in verses 1 through 4, David explores the extent of this folly in man's foolish corruption. This cancer of wicked folly has spread to every person. Yet not all hope is lost. David then expresses confidence that God is on his throne. And in verses 5 to 7, he is going to bring God's wise judgment that's coming and will restore a joyful life to his people. David wrote this psalm to this faithful remnant who kept their eyes on God, waiting for that salvation, giving them hope if they turn from their own destructive folly and find salvation in God's wise, in God's wisdom. So let's jump in now in verses 1 through 4 and examine our own souls to find there the hidden foolish corruption of humanity. God's Spirit writes through David. The fool says in his heart, There is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. Yahweh looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Have they no knowledge, all the evildoers who eat out my people as they eat bread and do not call upon Yahweh? Now, verse 1 is kind of the summary statement. Here's where David is going. It's setting the theme of this song that strives to bring hope to the faithful remnant. And it's a striking opening statement, kind of a verbal grenade launched into a society that's collapsing upon itself. The fool says in his heart, there's no God. Surely these people don't think that they are fools. They think that they're the cream of the crop. They're the smartest people in the world. Actually, we are the ones who are closest to God. But just saying it so doesn't make it so. We need to understand what a fool is. The specific word for fool here is more than simple ignorance of the way God made the world. This fool is corrupt. John Calvin says this word means it's a perverse, vile, and contemptible person. It's a corrupt folly. God calls us to pursue wisdom throughout his word. Wisdom is 
is the concept of the quest for self-understanding and mastery of the world in the way that God made us to live in it, to have dominion over it. It's knowing how to live in God's world. So the kind of folly that David is speaking about here isn't just childish ignorance, but it's active rebellion against the way God made the world. It's thinking that you're smarter than God, that your ways are better than his. It's trying to twist God's world to do what it wasn't designed to do. It's putting yourself on the throne of your own life, which is why this person says there is no God. It's not so much that this fool is an outspoken atheist like Richard Dawkins traveling all over the world writing books, making these grand declarations of that he knows there's no God. That's just, well, foolishness. But the type of atheist that David speaks of is the one who knows. He knows there's a God. But he acts as though God is absent from his life. That God has no authority to tell him what to do. He won't hold him accountable. He has no design in this world that he must conform to. It's really just a functional atheism. He can say that he believes in God, but his actions reveal otherwise. That's why David says this fool proclaims his atheism in his own heart. Because nobody can really say for certainty there's no God. You'd have to be God to say that. And then you're self-defeating. The fool says it in his heart. Because even though he knows there's a God, he knows the worlds just don't come out of nowhere by themselves. But in order to live the life he wants to, he needs to convince himself that there is no God. It's an internal wrestle with his conscience when this enticing sin presents an illicit pleasure and says, go for it. God won't do anything about it. Indulge. Take it. Take the fruit. It's good. In fact, this person probably even finds much personal benefit by outwardly declaring a devotion to God because it gives him cover in the eyes of everyone else for his sinful choices. The Jews fell into this trap all the time. They were called out for their sin and they would defend themselves. Well, we live in this land. God gave it to us and he promised to never take it away from us. So what's he going to do about it? Even our own president will claim to be a believer in God. And he'll pull that card out once in a while when it gives him the nice old grandpa credibility in spite of promoting unrighteousness in his own policies. During election season, many politicians will try to woo your vote by showing, look what church I go to. Here's a picture of me holding my Bible. But once they face the pressure, they too will go right along with foolishly undermining the order of the family, causing further confusion, devaluing our money, engaging in foreign conflicts for their own benefit. We have a word for that. It's called corruption. That's what David says right here in verse 1. They do abominable deeds. They need the statement, there is no God, to be true. Because if it isn't, they're in a lot of trouble. Usually when someone goes down this path of functional atheism, it isn't because they're being logically consistent. As though they've found some consistent, convincing, philosophical argument for atheism. 
No, the reason people make these arguments is because they have plunged themselves so deeply into corruption, they suppress the truth and unrighteousness that they must say there is no God. It has to be true. One leading scientist once even confessed, surprisingly, I suppose the reason we leapt at the idea of evolution was that the idea of God interfered with our sexual mores. They want their sin. They just don't want God calling them out on it. But even in their sin, they still bear God's image. We are rational creatures. We want to live consistently. So we can't live consistently with having our sin and the idea of God. So instead of jettisoning our sin, they get rid of the idea of God. This is the corruption from Adam's fall. The sickness from Adam spread throughout generations. As Jeremiah the prophet said, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? This sickness is called folly. They want their sinful pleasures more than they want God, who is the source of all pleasure. It doesn't make sense. They want to control the world. They want to define for themselves what goodness is, but apart from God, there is none who does good. Now, the temptation when you're in the midst of a world that's full of folly is, is to think that they are all the problem. Because if you were in charge, I'm sure you'd do much better. We all think we're so much smarter than those in charge. We like to complain about our boss or about our presidents. Or we can look back in history and think that, that moment in history, what fools that nation was to go along with that. If I were living, then I would have stood up against it. But we are just as foolish. Here we are in this nation that kills mil a million babies every year. We mutilate children, destroy families for the sake of pride. We hand off our children to be raised by strangers and discipled by the state. We join the panic of desperation over a public health emergency. If anyone tries to speak up with God's wisdom, we quickly shut them down because we fear man's opinion more than we fear God's. This folly infects us all. That's what David explains in the following verses. In verse 2, he says, God is above all of the corruption. He's in heaven on his throne, looking down upon the world to see if there's anyone who understands. That is, he's searching for anyone who seeks after him. Is there anyone who's wise, seeking God's wisdom? He looks upon the children of man. Literally, that means, that's translated sons of Adam. All of us are descended from Adam. Is there a single righteous person in the whole population of the planet that seeks wisdom from God? Remember from Proverbs, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. The truly wise person who is someone who first seeks God. They fear God. They submit to God. They surrender their life to God. They're mindful of, that, of God's coming day of judgment. They're keenly aware of God's design for this world. God is looking through the entire planet for one person who lives this way. It's not like God really has to do a careful search. It's just, it's a metaphor for 
God's thorough knowledge and wisdom. He is utterly aware of every deed done by every person. He knows every thought that has passed through every synapse of your brain. God is not aloof, disconnected, disinterested up in heaven. He is intimately aware of every detail throughout history and every detail of your life. And all he sees is corruption everywhere. It's the same imagery that was used in Genesis 6 when God came down to look upon the people and in Noah's day and see, is there a single righteous person? No, destroy it all with a flood. I'll save one just to start over. And then in Genesis 11, the people are now building a tower to make themselves like God. God comes down to see what it is they're up to and sees they are up to sin, destroys the tower and scatters them. Similarly, in Genesis 18, comes to Sodom and Gomorrah, looking for righteousness, does not find one righteous person, so he destroys the cities in fire and brimstone. The same assessment here in Psalm 14. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. It's not us versus them. Everybody under heaven is a corrupt fool. It's God versus us. Not one of us does good. If any of us is put in leadership, we would do just as wickedly and cause just as much chaos. We have all turned from God's ways and rejected God's wisdom. Paul has to quote these very verses in Romans chapter 3, verses 10 to 12. He's trying to get Jewish and Gentile Christians in the same church to get along. And the Jews are using this psalm to justify, hey, we're the smart ones. We're the wise ones who are actually closer to God. And those Gentiles... They're only welcome here if they follow our lead. Paul says, hold, hold, hold on, you guys are interpreting Psalm 14 wrong. All of you are fools, Jew and Gentile. And if you church can't figure that out, you are going to devour yourself. That's the result David witnesses in verse 4. God is making his assessment from heaven. He sees the folly of man eating up his people. Evildoers everywhere, making life difficult, impossible for righteousness to flourish. It's every day you have to make your bread. That's why you pray, give us this day our daily bread. It goes bad quickly. You need to make your bread and you need to eat it right away. As soon as it's brought out of the oven, it's gone. And similarly, as soon as some righteousness seems to start making its way, it's devoured by wickedness. His people are so engrossed in their folly. They don't call upon the Lord and they won't let anyone else either. In their corrupt pursuit of pleasure that's contrary to God's ways, they have no idea what their destruction, the destruction that they are causing. They have no idea of the judgment that's coming. They have no knowledge of God, no knowledge of his ways, his designs, his purposes, and without God and in their minds, in their hearts, it just becomes this dog-eat-dog -dog world. What standard of morality do we have to live by if there's no objective standard giver? And so, who says I can't kill my neighbor and take all of his things? Who says I can't change my gender because I feel like it? 
If Darwinism is true, then survival of the fittest is our standard of morality. This is the fruit of the Enlightenment. As Nietzsche feared, he and his philosophers of the day tried to make sense of our world with strict reason and logic, leaving aside all theological arguments. No, we don't need that. We can reason ourselves to truth. We want, to, we want just bare scientific fact. But he feared, he wondered, maybe this path might produce more chaos. Perhaps killing God would bring disorder and destruction upon ourselves. And his fears were correct. But it didn't stop him from pursuing this, or promoting this movement. And we see the consequences all around us today. There's no such thing as bare scientific fact. Strict mathematics without God's wise order. You need to know the God who ordered it by his own wisdom. As our society rejects the ideas of God and his moral standards that we see in scripture, it just plunges us further into confusion and chaos and corruption. We embrace our folly as normal and healthy, like it's a good thing. We write scientific papers justifying it. We pass laws promoting it. And it will be the end of us. Not necessarily as, as God speaking in a loud voice to us saying, I'm judging you. But in the Romans, one way of God just handing us over to our folly and letting it be our undoing. We must recognize how destructive our folly is that dwells within us and flee from it, turn from it, repent, and seek salvation in God's wisdom alone. Let's see what that salvation looks like in verses 5 to 7. Salvation in God's wise judgment. There they are, in great terror, for God is with the generation of the righteous. You would shame the plans of the poor, but Yahweh is his refuge. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When Yahweh restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice, let Israel be glad. Now, if you're reading through Psalm 14, just all in one reading... It gets a little confusing at this point because verse 5 makes this strange leap that sounds like suddenly all of these foolish people are in great terror because they realize what trouble they're in, even though verse 4 just said they have no idea what's going on. They're completely unaware. And the key for understanding this switch is the word there. David, in his prophetic vision, is not just seeing into the throne room of God up in heaven, but he's seeing into the future as well, at the throne of judgment. And he says, there, there will be the end of all this blissful, ignorant folly and will produce great terror. Suddenly then, in that place, at that time, it will become clear that God judges corruption. None of us will escape this condemnation. It will strike terror into the heart of everyone, every fool who desired God not to be there. God will bring this judgment, he says, for the sake of the generation of the righteous. God had a plan to fill the whole planet with righteous image bearers. You're not going to let some fools 
thwart his plans, he will bring a generation of righteous people. David's keeping a long-term vision here. Reminding those who seek after God, don't let the immediate trial of the moment overwhelm you. God's purposes will not be thwarted. He will rescue those who seek after him. He does it by shaming the wisdom of the world. He's going to use the world's own wisdom against itself. Verse 6 addresses this foolish generation directly. He turns to them and says, You would shame the plans of the poor man. That's what corrupt, God-hating folly does. It looks down upon other people's affliction. It laughs at those who are caught in despair. It assumes that those people are poor because of their sin, but we are rich because of our righteousness. But that's worldly wisdom, not God's wisdom. God's wisdom is going to flip it upside down and use the weak and the poor to shame the powerful. Looking through history, David sees that God is going to use what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. Through this supernatural wisdom, God is going to create a refuge for all who want to be rescued from the destruction of this world's folly. As the world crumbles under this corrupt foolishness, those who call upon the Lord will find a strong tower that will remain standing in the rubble of the world's corruption. So looking forward to that judgment, David now in verse 7 cries out to God, to bring that salvation. Oh, that we would have that today. Verse seven is actually, though framed as more of a question. He's so excited. He wants it now, but he can't figure out how it's gonna come. Specifically, the question is, who will bring this salvation out of Zion? David knows all the promises. A seed of Eve, an offspring of Abraham, A child of Judah, even one of his own sons, is going to be the redeemer. But if this assessment of every son of Adam is true, I don't get how that's going to work. But God's wisdom is far greater than ours. I can't see how it's going to work, but I know it's going to work. God is trustworthy. And whoever it is and however it's going to be accomplished, it's going to be a mighty display of God's power and wisdom that should make us all stand and rejoice. David didn't understand who it was. But we do. His name is Jesus. Jesus is the only one who escaped Adam's corruption because he was born of a virgin. He was the only person who could ever truly be called good. He always came to the defense of the poor. He always provided bread for his people when they called for help. Jesus has the name that's above every name. Whoever calls upon his name will be saved. His name even means salvation. He alone can bring the captives out of this foolish world. Jesus is the wisdom that created this world. Jesus is the wisdom that's personified in the book of Proverbs as lovely and beautiful to pursue. Jesus is the only wise man who always sought God's will. He's the judge who will hold accountable the whole world by God's wisdom. It's his wisdom alone that can rescue you and restore what was destroyed. 
And so how does he put that wisdom on display? How does he enact this wisdom for our salvation? Paul says to the Corinthians, he who was rich became poor for our sake. He says again, he who knew no sin became sin for us so that in him we can become the righteousness of God. He takes the destruction from our corrupt folly upon himself all the way to the cross. Instead of letting our folly destroy ourselves, he puts it upon himself and lets it destroy him. Instead of burying us in a flood or destroying, crumbling our lives and scattering us around the world or raining hailstones of fire down upon us, God poured out that wrath upon his son. And then because no amount of human folly can hold down the eternally wise son of God, Jesus rose from the dead to give birth to a new generation of righteous and wise people. All who turn from destructive folly will find salvation in God's wisdom in Christ and be born into his wise family. Though corruption may surround you, he's putting to death the folly within you. Though man's folly will bring death to this world, God's wisdom is being born in you to restore your fortunes forever. So how can we further turn from our destructive folly and find salvation in God's wisdom? Let me just finish up with three points of application. First, as we look at this psalm, we must examine our own hearts for the folly of functional atheism. You can't read, the fool says in his heart, there is no God, and think that applies to somebody else before you see how it applies to you. Take the atheistic log out of your own eye before taking the speck out of someone else's. In what way does your heart try to convince you that God does not see what you're doing? He, he won't hold you accountable. It's okay. In what ways do you overestimate your own abilities and strength? Some of you might think more highly of yourselves than you ought. You think everybody else is the fool for not living the way you do. They don't eat the same foods as you. They don't parent the same way that you do. Maybe you've convinced yourself that just one more look at pornography won't hurt. One more drink won't be that harmful. Or your heart tells you that your comfort and your joy and your trial it's not going to come from God. It's going to come from that pie. Just have a little more food. That will comfort you. Or go spend money on more things. Go seek out the pleasures of sex. Find popularity and fame. Or just isolate yourself. Just don't take it to God. We all want to point the finger at somebody else as the source of our problems. And that might even be true. But perhaps God is leading you to turn away from your own folly and that will re relieve you, release you from the pain you feel. And second, recognizing our folly is not enough. We must replace it with God's wisdom. We must realize that God's wisdom is much different from the wisdom of this world. It's much different than the, the natural impulse of our hearts, what we think is the right thing to do. 
God's wisdom is most clearly displayed in the death and resurrection of Christ. The gospel is wisdom for every circumstance. We can apply the gospel to the thousands of things you'll experience this week because it is the guiding star through the night. Paul told the Corinthians, when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech and wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. To him, all wisdom flowed from the gospel. It was the gospel that showed him who he was and how to gain mastery over this world with King Jesus, the Lord of it all. Paul further explained, yes, we, we do impart wisdom to the mature. We want you to grow in wisdom, although it's not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. We impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. That is to be a light to guide us. And none of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Those who would reject Christ, they don't know the first thing about the best course for your life. They don't know what will make you the happiest. They don't know what brings the most health, safety, or prosperity to a people. They don't know the first thing about financial stewardship or inspirational leadership because they don't know God's wisdom in Christ who denied himself, became poor for us. As verse 6 suggests, the world will scoff at your trust in God's wisdom. Whenever there's some difficult situation that arises in our world and it requires us to bend our knees and bow our heads and pray, the world mocks us. Oh, thanks for your thoughts and prayers, you do-nothing Christians. You guys are useless. We need more laws. When society pronounces doom and gloom because of some impending disaster, like global warming is going to fry us all tomorrow or a pandemic, they mock us for our trust in God's sovereignty and our hope in his resurrection. But that's to be expected because the world is foolish and God's wisdom exposes worldly wisdom as folly. It puts it to shame. Don't be swayed by their taunts. Only God's wisdom in the gospel gives light. Finally, as you trust in that gospel wisdom, grow in God's wisdom in his word and among his people. Remember first that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So you must first resolve to submit your life to Christ daily to the truth of his sovereign control and his coming judgment and the wisdom of his death and resurrection, that will be your guiding light. And then remember, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Immerse yourself in the Bible to gain the mind of Christ 
to know his will, to drink deeply of his wisdom so that as you go through this world, you will see folly everywhere you go and can navigate through it all with God's wisdom. But you can't do it alone. A big part of repentance and faith is immersing yourself in a new group of people, a community of people who will call out your folly and call you to God's wisdom. The book of Proverbs, again, is full of calls to surround yourself with wise counselors. For example, where there is no guidance, a people falls, but in an abundance of counselors, there is safety. Find people in your life who are living by God's wisdom, who have endured the folly of this world, who speak his truth with confidence and joy in that coming day of rescue and immerse yourself in their lives. Ask them if you can hang out in their homes. You're going to be the same person next year that you are today, except for the books you read, the, the knowledge you fill your head with, the ideas you fill your head with, and the people you hang around. Don't let your employer be the loudest voice of wisdom in your mind. Don't let the news, your favorite news outlet, be the voice of wisdom in your life. Let God's word make you wise. And don't find joy in the folly of corrupt company, but immerse yourself in the people of God to help you grow in wisdom. It's not gonna happen all at once. As a child, you're quite ignorant of the way the world works and of who you are in the family, but over the years, you grow into your identity in the family and your role in the family's work. And likewise, you too will grow in God's wisdom, immersed in the family of God. You will become more certain of who you were made to be, and you will become more confident in your mastery of this world that God made you to serve in. So turn from destructive folly and find God's salvation in the wisdom displayed in Christ that now is at work in his church. Let's pray. God, we seek your wisdom. There's so much folly all around us and it's too easy for us to fall into it. But we are confident that in Christ, we have the power of God by his spirit alive in us. The same spirit who created the world out of nothing, who spoke things into existence, who parted the Red Sea, who raised Jesus from the dead, who sent Paul around the, the Roman Empire to tear down spiritual strongholds. That spirit is alive among us. So help us be bold to proclaim your wisdom even as the world mocks us. Help us be bold to stand on your wisdom and to pursue your righteousness, to build our homes upon the wise rock of Christ. That our church and our homes may stand as a testimony of he who is a firm foundation, who is a solid rock, who is a mighty fortress that will stand through it all. God, give us such courage that's founded on your wisdom in Christ. Amen.